Amen and amen. Good morning. I just feel the need to just say this to you this morning. Don't grow weary in doing good, saints. Right? For in due season, we will reap harvest. Do you feel weary? I, I do. <laughs> I think many of you do. And I don't know if, if you sensed it this morning, but I, I sensed a lift even in our worship today from the time we started by the time we finished. And that is the power of our God in worship. Not the power of a building or the power of a big service, the power of our God as his people worship him. And I'm just so grateful for our team and so grateful for you. I'm so good to be back in this building. So good to be back together again. I, I love you and I'm, I'm thankful to be here with you this morning. Excited about what God is going to do in us today. We've been in a series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, it's been over a year. Some of you are going, yeah, we know. It's been a long time. It's been over a year that we've been in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we're about to wrap it up. We're finishing uh, chapter 15 today. We've been in the last few days of Jesus' life. We, we, we've walked with him in the garden in this unbelievable test in the garden where he leaves that garden victorious and he's arrested and then he goes into six trials, three Jewish, three Roman. And then last Sunday in our city group families, we studied about the, the passion of the Christ, which means suffering. We, we studied about how his suffering really, really went another level as they scourged him, as they whipped him with this instrument of death called the cat of nine tails. It's an awful, an awful instrument. It's this wooden handle that has leather straps, and in those straps are woven pieces of glass and metal and bone. And when the executioner hits uh, the victim with that and hits them on their back, it just pulls away strips uh, of flesh. And it leaves the victim where you can actually see bone and intestine. And many victims don't walk away from a scourging. You can imagine the loss of blood from such a horrific experience. And Jesus is exhausted. He didn't sleep, right, the night that he was arrested. He didn't sleep. The, the disciples got a little rest, but he didn't. And now he's been scourged, so he's exhausted physically. And now he's had this great loss of blood, and this, friends, is the condition of our Savior as he grabs hold of a piece of wood that will be his cross, and he carries it as far as he can, as far as his human strength will allow him to carry it. Mark 15, 21, if you have your Bibles, open up with me. Let's study this beautiful text today. What a privilege to preach this today. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Serene, who was coming in from the country and He's the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross. So they brought him to the place called Golgotha, 
which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. But he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Would you pray with me? God, I just feel so unworthy. Unfit. To be able to speak these words of your death. And yet I know, God, that I'm covered by your grace today. The grace that is provided by this very act. And I'm so grateful. I'm so humbled. Lord, I pray that as we read this text today, that you would truly help us to feel the gravity of it. The weight, the significance, Lord, of this time, this moment, this obedience And how it changed everything, everywhere, in all of the universe. God, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would meet us here today. God, I pray that you would lead us to all truth. You would help me to get out of your way. That you would increase in this time, that I would decrease, and that your word would stand alone. As the truth that we look to for life change for hope in the struggle of life and even in the broken moments of death. You are all we need and you are perfect in all your ways. We love you, we worship you and now God I pray that you would lead us to these words that change us and give us life in Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to go all the way down through verse 41 today, but I wanted us just to kind of take this in smaller portions. The text today is filled with a lot of details, a lot of details in this text today. In fact, the name of the message is the people, the place, and the pain of the cross, just because there's so many details involved. Uh, But before we get to all the details, there's one other P we need to look at, and that is the prophecy of the cross. We can't get to this point and not consider all the words over a thousand years of prophecy that have given very specific details to what is happening right now in our text. Uh, Do we have that graphic, Jason, up there for some details? I want us just to look at this together because it just blows my mind here. Watch this. Psalm 69, for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Mark 15, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh. Psalm 22, 18, they divided my garments and cast lots for my clothing. Mark 15, 24, then they divided his clothes, casting lots for them. Isaiah 53, 12, he was counted among the rebels. Mark 15, 27, they crucified him between two criminals. Psalm 22, 6 through 8, everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads, Mark 15, 29. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him. Psalm 22, so specific of what's happening. They pierced my hands and my feet. 
Mark 15, 24, then they crucified him. Amos 8, 9, I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the land in the daytime, Mark 15, 33. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until 3 in the afternoon. Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, Mark 15, 34. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isaiah 53, 9, they made his grave with the wicked, with the rich man in his death, in Mark 15, 43, which we're going to cover next week, Joseph of Arimathea bought some fine linen and wrapped him in linen. They placed him in the tomb cut out of a rock. Joseph was that rich man. Phenomenal. Amazing. Over a thousand years prophesied exactly what is happening in our text today. I want us to look also at the people and the place. There are seven different people groups mentioned in our text. And what I love about this is that they're, they're people from all walks of life. They're people from different races and different countries of origin, uh, different associations with Jesus, and yet here at the cross, they've been brought together. Some of them, some of their intentions are murderous and evil, and yet some of them are loving and faithful and yet devastated. And the text begins with this man that we read about by the name of Simon of Serene. Uh, Simon is from this place called Serene. It's in northern Africa. It doesn't really exist anymore. There's some ruins there. It's in modern-day northern Africa uh, in Libya, basically. It, it started its decline and its downfall about 115 A.D., and it, and it took several hundred years to officially end that city. But it was a major, um, a major uh, city of military fortification and other things, commerce. But this is where Simon was coming from. And theologians say that there was a pretty large contingent of Jewish people in Serene. And so here uh, Simon has come from uh, this place and from this Jewish community to celebrate Passover. He's walking in with his two boys, Alexander and Rufus. Evidently they're old enough to make such a journey from northern Africa. And they get to Jerusalem, and they're walking up, and a soldier compels. You know what that means, right? It, force, it means forces him to, to take up the cross of Jesus. Jesus cannot take it anymore. Theologians say that because he comes from Serene in northern Africa, that, that Simon was a black man. And I love that because even here at the cross, holding the cross, is this picture of diversity. Romans. Israelis, Palestinians, Africans, all here at the cross. And yet another beautiful picture of what the church should look like in its diversity. I think it's so interesting. One of the interesting theories in this little spot right here I just want to bring your attention to is about Alexander and Rufus. Why would Mark mention Alexander and Rufus? I mean, he mentions a lot of people. He doesn't go through the detail of their son's names. Why mention these boys? Well, the theory is a pretty interesting one. The theory is based on something that Paul says in Romans 16. Romans 16, 13 to be exact, Paul mentions, uh, he's going through all these different, he's remembering people in Rome. He's going, hey, say hello to this person. Tell this person I love them and tell these different people hello for me. And also say hello to Rufus and his mother. 
And the theory is that this potentially, we don't know for sure, but the theory is that this potentially is the same Rufus from our text today, which would mean that after Simon carries the cross of Jesus, he also trusts in Jesus. That he looks in his eyes, he's holding that cross, he hears the words of Jesus, and at some point, maybe he comes to know Christ as his Savior. And all these years later, in the mission of Paul in Rome, his family is on mission with Jesus to make him known. We don't know if that's what happened. But how cool would it be if it is, right? How amazing if that legacy has continued. And, And then the question is, why else would Mark give this mention of these names, Alexander and Rufus, unless that Roman audience that Mark is speaking to happens to know Alexander and Rufus. Do you guys know Alexander and Rufus? This is the context. This is the story of their dad who carried the cross of Jesus. I I love it. I hope it's true. Simon carried Jesus' cross just after Jesus couldn't carry it any longer. He carries it to a place called Golgotha, which is an Aramaic word for the skull. The Latin term for the same thing is Calvaria, which is where we get the word Calvary, right? We sang it this morning about Calvary. This is the same place we're talking about today, the people of the cross. This is the place of the cross. In Jerusalem, there's two places that are highly contested for the actual spot where Jesus was crucified and buried. And I've been to both places. There's a Catholic spot uh, that's covered over by a place called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. That is the, uh, most Catholics believe this is the place. Of course, we don't know for sure because even at that spot is when Constantine's mother came 300 years after crucifixion to build this church. And she said, hey, where was the place Jesus was crucified? Again, 300 years after he was crucified. So maybe they picked the right spot, maybe they didn't. They literally just saw some wood somewhere and said, these must be the, the wood from the cross. And of course, in Catholic churches all over the world are splinters of that wood. And if you were to put all those splinters together, you'd have a massive building, not a cross. Obviously, they're not the splinters of the real cross. So this is, this is the place where many people believe is the the. Golgotha, the Calvary. Uh, not far from that is the original little church that she built over the, what she believed was the tomb of Jesus. But there's another place that I visited called the Garden Tomb. And it is absolutely beautiful. If you ever get a chance to go to the Holy Land, you should go to both of these places. And I'm not, I'm not saying we should trust archaeology to our feelings, but it just didn't feel right to me in the Catholic location. Um, but the garden tomb was a place of peace. And you walk through this actual garden, beautiful garden, and you get to this place, and you sit in these little stands, and you look across the way at a, at a rock face of a small little hill. It's not, the hill itself is not even taller than our building here. And the rock face has been withered away by water and erosion over the years. And it, you can sort of see how it could maybe look like a, a skull. And there's a picture down below from the 1940s that looks even more closely like a human skull. And they say this is Golgotha there at the garden tomb. And not far from that place is an actual tomb. 
where you can go in and see where it was hand-hewn out of the rock. And there's also a remnant of a, where a church, a Christian church, was built over that very spot thousands of years before. So they both have very interesting aspects of which could be uh, the actual place. But this is Golgotha. Jesus here then is offered wine mixed with myrrh, fulfillment of prophecy. The idea was to dull his pain. But when Jesus tastes it, he, he doesn't want anything to do with it. He wants to be fully present for the sacrifice that he's going to give. And then Mark gives all these details, again, all, so many details. But when it comes to crucifixion, he didn't give any details. He literally just says, and they crucified him. The reason for this is because Mark is speaking to a Roman audience. And of all people around the world who knew crucifixion, it would have been Romans. At this point when Jesus is crucified, they believe that at least 30,000 people had been crucified up to this point. Romans knew crucifixion and all the gory details, all the science behind the fact that the nails in his wrists and in his feet, the roughness of his, uh, against his back of the cross where he had been lacerated by the cat of nine tails, all these things wouldn't kill Jesus necessarily. They would weaken him. It was actually how he would suffocate trying to get his breath as he pulled himself up against the pain of those points of nails, pushing on his feet and pulling on his wrists, nerve endings just firing constantly, such incredible pain, and yet he dies of suffocation. That is crucifixion in the Romans that Mark is writing to knew all too well he didn't have to give details of crucifixion. So the second group of people that we see at the cross are the soldiers. They don't seem to care very much because they're just gambling for his clothing. John tells us there were five pieces of clothing that uh, are there, and they're four soldiers. A quartirion is what it's called. That watch had four soldiers. Four pieces of his clothing go to four different soldiers, but he has a fifth element of clothing called a tunic, and it's all one piece. And they said they didn't want to rip it apart. And so let's gamble for that one piece. And they do something called casting lots. It's in essence today, if you were to say, try to make a decision and you were to pull out your phone, you can do this with Siri if you didn't know it. Or you can pull a quarter out of your pocket and you can flip a coin. That's casting lots. Or you can do it with sticks. Who gets the short stick? There's different ways of casting lots. But for whatever way they did it, they gambled for this piece of clothing, showing that they are not interested in the gory detail of a loss of a human life that they caused, only concerned about themselves and what they get. Mark then gives more details, a time marker. Mark shares with us that this is the time that, that the Jews, uh, this is how Jews keep time, because Romans and Jews kept time differently. And the Jews counted time by 6 a.m. in the morning. They would have called that the first hour of the day, 6 a.m. So at 6 a.m., Jesus would have been before Pilate. He would have been uh, then escorted off to be scourged and for three hours in these trials and, and, and scourged and, and beaten. But Mark tells us that at, at the third hour, which is 9 a.m., Jesus is crucified. Look with me at verse 26. We keep going. It says, And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. 
And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This whole text of Scripture is just disgusting. This whole little section of Scripture is so disgusting because it's all mockery. It's all making fun of Christ. This is an environment of mockery. Even the inscription that is placed above the head of Jesus that reads, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews, John tells us, is a mockery. John tells us that Pilate himself wrote this sign. He did it as an insult to the Jewish leaders. He was angry with them. You're going to force me to crucify an innocent man? Okay, then let me give you your king. This will be your king. And he writes this sign to to be an insult, a dig at the Jewish leaders. And now we see the Jewish leaders using it as an insult against Jesus. Oh, I thought you were the king. Thought you could do all these things. Tear down the temple and rebuild it. Come down from there. If you just come down, then we'll believe. How many miracles had they seen? How much had been done? What all did God have to do to show them that he was Messiah? And yet they say, just one more. This evil, evil environment of mockery. It's horrific. Of course, their attempt to mock Jesus fails because it speaks of his true identity, doesn't it? It says very plainly who he truly is, king of the Jews. The third group of people listed in our, in our text are the robbers. They're crucified on his left and on his right. Couldn't help but think about when James and John, and even James and John's mother, you might remember. Remember this? They come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, Lord, can, can my son, or they both say, can, can we sit at your right or left hand when you come into your kingdom, right? Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking And I wonder if that thought came into her mind as she's sitting there looking at these robbers on the left and right of Jesus. The fourth group we talk about this morning are the people passing by. You know, you see in different artwork, different pictures of Calvary or Golgotha. You see some of them, even the Passion of the Christ is pictured on this great mountain. Of course, it's it's beautifully cinematic, but it's it's not actually true the geography of that picture. It is a, it's a small hill, and in fact, if the one at the garden tomb is where it was, he wouldn't have been at the top. He wouldn't have been able to hear people. He would have been at the bottom where passers-by, like these people, could say things or spit on him or slap him or throw stones and continue the insulting of our Savior. They come by, and in this demonic sarcasm, I'm telling you, as I read this throughout the week, I've just been more and more filled with this image of my, in my mind of so many demons and Satan himself speaking these insults against the Savior. And they think 
that they've won. In this moment, they just insult him and they just continue to berate him for how he has failed. You know, there's a scene, I watched it this morning for one of my, you know, I live with three, three women, and so I got quite a bit of time uh, before uh, we leave. <clears throat> and um, so I had some time, I was praying for a service, and I, I decided to look at this scene from Chronicles of Narnia, this movie that was made several years ago from the C.S. Lewis book. I'm going to put it on our South City Facebook page because you just need to see it. Because there's this scene where Aslan is on uh, the stone rock. And, of course, he is, Lewis is portraying him as Jesus in this moment. And the reason Lewis wrote the book is for children to be able to somehow understand this sacrifice of Jesus in this story. And so it's a little more palatable, even though it's, it's even hard to watch as well. But there's a lion, and his name is Aslan. He's laying on this rock, and he's bound up, and... And this evil winter witch, and she's there with a, with a knife, and the scene is just filled with demonic characters and vultures and, and animals and people that are laughing at Jesus and clapping, and, and they think they've won. And she even, she even leans down and says, so much for love. It is a horrifying and yet amazing scene that gives us a picture of what was going on in the spiritual realm. That's what is happening in this moment. The fifth group of people are the Jewish leaders. So you got the people passing by, the spiritual leaders, and even the robbers who are mocking Christ and reviling him. But I just got to tell you something. In this moment, something happens that C.S. Lewis's movie and, and novel does not cover. And that is that the mockery stops, I promise you, when we see what God does in this next moment in the pain of the cross. Look with me at verse 33. When the sixth hour, that would be 12 p.m., okay? When the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., the literal sun stops shining. Do you see that? That is not a small detail of our story. In the middle of the noonday sun, it just stops shining. Mark goes on. And the ninth hour, 3 p.m., Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. They continue on with the mockery. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. So we go to this moment at 12 p.m. And the sun stops shining and the mockery ends with a hush. And God says, who's winning now, right? It would, everyone would have to be quiet. Everyone would have to, to shut up to the glory of God Almighty as he darkens the sun. It stays pitch black 
for three hours. Many theologians will point out for those who would argue this and say, well, it must have been an eclipse. No, because Passover was built around a full moon. It couldn't be an eclipse. But I, I want to bring your attention to what it really was. This was a horrifying moment. Maybe the most horrifying moment in all of history to that point. And it would literally change how time was recorded in this moment. Even Jewish, uh, the Jewish historian Tertullian and the early church father Origen historians both speak of this darkness and how it wasn't necessarily the whole world that was dark, but it was the Roman Empire went dark, interestingly enough. I like what John MacArthur says about this moment. He says, the darkness of Calvary did not represent the absence of God. Right? So this is before, remember, 12 o'clock, this is before Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? No, the darkness of Calvary does not represent the absence of God, but his holy, terrifying presence. The Father descended in judgment on Golgotha in thick gloom as the divine executioner to unleash his fury, not against sinners, but against the sin bearer. The full weight of God's wrath was poured out on the Son of God as the spotless Lamb of God was sacrificed for sin so that sinners might be justified through him. Moved by his perfect justice, God's infinite wrath released an eternity of punishment on the incarnate Son who as an infinite and eternal person absorbed the tortures of hell in a finite span of time. This was the dreadful cup of divine judgment that Jesus anticipated while sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. This was a terrifying moment of God's judgment. So from 12 to 3, it's dark, and at 3 p.m., the darkness subsides. And I think it's interesting, the text says that Jesus with a loud voice, this is not a Jesus who's, who's withering and can barely say anything. No, Jesus with a loud voice. I say that because Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down, right? Jesus with a loud voice and with strength still. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some people continue to mock him saying, it must be Elijah. Let's watch for Elijah. It's an interesting moment Daniel Aiken speaks of. He says that this is the only moment in all of the gospel where Jesus refers to God as something other than Father. This is what he says. He says it's in this moment that Christ views himself more as a sinner's sacrifice than the Father's Son. Isn't that incredible? Not Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He has taken our place in that moment to receive this just penalty that we deserve. And for the first time in all of eternity, just try and wrap your brain around this, this thought. For the first time in all of eternity, eternity past, Jesus is now separated from the Father. You know, there have been other moments of testing. Jesus, in the very first chapter of Mark that we studied, Jesus is 
preparing for ministry, and he goes into the wilderness, and he, he faces Satan head on, and he, he fasts for 40 days, and he's weakened. And the text says that after he is victorious in the garden, by the way, Adam failed. Jesus was victorious, right? And after he's victorious over the enemy in the garden, the Bible says that God sends angels to care and serve and minister to Jesus. And there's an interesting moment in Luke 22 there in the Garden of Gethsemane that we just studied a few weeks ago, where after Jesus is tempted again and Jesus is, is struggling and he, and he says these words, Lord, not my will but yours be done. He first says that this cup could pass from me, but not my will, yours be done. Even then, Luke 22 says that God sends an angel to serve Jesus, to care for Jesus. I want you to know in this moment that we read today, on the cross, as Jesus is separated from the Father for the first time in all eternity, there is no angel to give relief. There is no Father to be present. Jesus is separated fully from God. In that moment, Jesus literally walks through hell because hell is being separated from God and he is separated from his Father so that we don't have to be. He's willing to be separated so that we don't have to be. John says that Jesus, with a loud voice, says, it is finished. And Luke in his gospel says, Another phrase, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in our text in Mark, Mark says that he, says, he, he breathes his last. Christ endured so much pain. You, you know, the nails, the, the crown of thorns. Again, none of those things caused his death. He laid his life down for us but this judgment that he was willing to endure for us. And I want you to know the very moment that Christ's life ended. I mean, this is of, of cosmic significance that we can't even wrap our brains around, but at the very moment of his death, some amazing things happened. And Mark brings us into some of that. Look with me, verse 38. Incredible. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. See, Mark brings in this, this, this historical marker, this thing that happened at the very moment of Christ's death. He breathes his last and the curtain is torn from top to bottom in the temple. Now, you may have some curtains at home. It's not the same kind of curtain. I promise you. This veil, this, this curtain is not, and this, this act of being rent or torn from the top to the bottom, it's not just some random event. It's not some random detail. It is an actual sign. It is a communication from God above that this Mosaic covenant that the temple represents is done. This old Mosaic covenant is over. It has now been replaced with the new covenant in Jesus' blood. Jesus' blood has ratified this new covenant in this moment. 
that in this very place where the curtain separates, would separate on the Day of Atonement, a holy God from a sinful people, and and a priest, one priest, hopefully prepared. Hopefully he's done everything correctly. Hopefully his heart is right. And as he enters the Holy of Holies, he's, he's wearing a robe with bells so that the priest outside can hear. And he's got a rope tied around his leg because if he enters this space inappropriately, he will fall over dead in the presence of God. And they'll have to pull him out by a rope. He goes in for the purpose to atone for the sins of the people, Right? That is what the curtain does. It separates the presence of a holy God and a sinful people. And yet here in this moment, God rents this curtain, this veil. Curtain, the Bible says, is four inches thick. It's the, it's the width of a handbreadth. That's a pretty thick curtain. It says in the Talmud that it was so big it took 300 priests to clean it. And move it. This is a significant element and sign and communication from God Almighty. <laughs> and the thing he communicates is, you now have access to me through Jesus. Amen? That is what he's saying to us. We no longer have to be represented by this Mosaic covenant, but the new covenant in my blood, Jesus is now our access. He is now our way. To this holy God, we don't have to be separated anymore. Mark then mentions to his Roman audience about this Roman and pagan commanding soldier. He's a centurion. It means that he's in charge of a hundred soldiers. Most likely, this guy had been with Jesus for a while, overseeing his soldiers. His soldiers may have been in charge of the entire crucifixion point. So Mark mentions this Roman soldier to his Roman audience for a purpose, I believe. And and he says that this man says this incredible statement of grace. Truly, this man was the son of God. Now Mark gives the detail, says that after he sees the way he breathes, that he mentions this. But I believe that this man has been along for the ride a lot longer Maybe this man accompanied Jesus in his trial with Pilate. When Pilate looks at Jesus and he says, are are you not afraid? Do you not know that I hold the power of life and death for you in my hands? And Jesus looks at Pilate and he says, you only have the power that my father has given you. And maybe Pilate chuckles and maybe this centurion chuckles. And then you move on. And maybe he was standing there as his men literally nail. They hammer a nail into Jesus' hands and feet. It says that Jesus looks at those soldiers and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Maybe he was standing nearby when, when one of the robbers who we read this morning, at one point he was, he was mocking Jesus. He was insulting Jesus, but somewhere along these hours, he has a change of heart. The robber And he says to his friend, do you you not know that this is the king? And he looks at Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looks at him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Maybe the centurion was in earshot. Maybe he heard that. Maybe his mind is racing and his heart is pounding. 
And finally, as he watches Jesus lay down his life and breathe his last, and he notices that the sun stops shining. Matthew tells us that's not the only thing that happened. He says that tombs, because of an earthquake, begin to come open, and saints begin to get out of their grave and walk into Jerusalem. Maybe the centurion is looking at all the things and considering all the phrases and saying, oh my. Whatever it is in this moment is a moment of grace to cause this hardened soldier to say, truly this was the Son of God. From murderer to mercy, God opens his eyes to truly see who Jesus was. Can I tell you something? That is Mark's desire. That is, that is Mark's heart for his audience in this moment. That all Romans who are reading this letter that I'm writing, that their eyes would be opened, that their Roman pagan eyes would be opened to who Jesus really is. Anybody that reads this that would see this Roman soldier in this moment of grace. And lastly, I want to mention the seventh group of people. In verse 40, it says, There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joses, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if you, you see this, but notice Mark doesn't mention any other disciples. There's a group of people who are present and, an, and a group of people who are not. He's very clear that this is a large group of women who are present. They've been faithful to him. They have ministered to him. They have served him. He specifically mentions Mary Magdalene. What, is, what did Jesus do for Mary Magdalene? He cast demons out of her. She says, I'll go with you to the cross. He mentions... Another Mary, she's the mother of James the Younger, one of the disciples, and Joses. And then this other woman by the name of Salome. Now, you may not remember who Salome is, but I've mentioned her already this morning. She is the wife of Zebedee. And they have two sons, James and John. Jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder. And she's looking on as these two thieves are crucified on the left and right of Jesus. And surely in her heart she thought, I ask, Lord, would you let my son sit on your right and your left? And, and now she's going, I didn't know what I was asking. It says there were many other amazing women who had cared for Jesus and followed him and ministered to him. The Gospel of John says that he was present along with Jesus' mother. And it's this moment at the foot of the cross. Mark says that the other women were at a distance and, and John and Jesus' mother were, were there at the cross. Maybe there was a separation. But they were close enough for Jesus to look down at John and say, say man, this is uh, your mother and, and woman. This is now your son. And from that point on, John cares for Jesus' mother. Can I just, just pause for a moment and just say how grateful I am for godly women. I'm so grateful for godly, 
leading women. You're amazing, and our church is full of them. Our church is full of godly, amazing women. And I'm thankful for this moment of recognition that Mark gives to so many. All right, as I close, there's so many details here, right? So many aspects. There's seven groups of people connected by the cross. There's this place called Golgotha. And there's this unbelievable pain that Jesus endures physically, relationally. There's so much going on here. But we can't leave this text this morning without acknowledging the prophecy. My gosh. How is this foretold apart from a holy author, God Almighty, who wrote this story and is writing it still? And we see it played out exactly. We can't leave this without considering the prophecy. We can't leave this without considering and thinking about the submission of Jesus to complete his mission. Remember what Jesus said in Mark, we studied it in this series. Mark 10, 45 is maybe, one of, maybe the most important verse that we see in, in the, the, the whole book, and that is that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. Remember that? This is the moment where Jesus gives his life as a ransom for many. He said that was his mission. Jesus in this moment fulfills his mission. But friends, as I looked at this and I saw so many details and people, and of course the emotion of the story, and I'm very emotional having sat with it and prayed over it all week. And I, I, carrying the gravity of it in my own heart and soul, I can't hardly can't contain it. But I thought about you. I thought about our church. I thought about all of us today gathered here around the cross, just like them. And I began to look at these different groups of people, and I thought, you know what? These same groups of people could be represented here today. And this is what I mean as I close. You might be like Simon. Maybe you didn't know Jesus. Maybe you haven't known Jesus. But at this point in your life, you're ready to be identified with Jesus. And now you want to take his cross. You want to take your cross and walk with him and live for him. And if that story or that theory is true, May it be true of your family too that you will have a legacy of your children following Jesus and making him known wherever he sends them. So maybe you're like Simon and you haven't known him, but today you're saying, I want to be identified with Jesus. I want to carry his cross. Maybe you're like the soldiers today, the sad soldiers who just don't care. Maybe you're listening to me today and you're looking at me going, I don't care. Because they didn't care. They, they're crucifying people every other day. So instead of considering the, the actual humanity of someone dying in a most gruesome way possible, they're going to gamble for something they can take home. Their only thought is selfishness. They're only focused on themselves. They're uninterested and unchanged. And maybe you're like those soldiers today. Maybe you're like the pastors 
by, who would walk by Jesus or the Jewish leaders or even the, the robbers before the change of heart. And all you, you want to do is just, you, you hate the idea of Jesus. Probably not true if you're here today, but it could be of someone you know. We probably all know people who mock Jesus, who would spit in his face, disrespect and dishonor him. We see it all over our culture today. Or maybe you're like the blessed robber, the blessed centurion soldier. Maybe today you've come into this place, and though you've been familiar with this story, maybe you're seeing it with new eyes. Because what I love about the story of the robber who had a change of heart and the centurion who said, truly, this is the Son of God, is we see at the, very, at the very spot where the blood of Jesus is being poured out, we see his grace change lives. We see his mercy have an effect. We see his blood given to those in such great need. And we see the robber who can't go through the church program and he can't even be baptized and he can't, he can't be discipled, but he says, Lord, would you remember me? And trust me, he deserved, he even said so, we, we deserve to be on this cross, and you don't. He says, remember me, and Jesus says, today you'll be with me, brother, in paradise. Friend, can I tell you, listen, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, let that blood change your life today as it did theirs. Let that sacrifice that is so gruesome and so devastating and so horrible change you as it has changed me. Go from someone who is such a great sinner as they were to someone changed by his grace and saved by his mercy. Would you do that? Would you put your trust in him today? Clearly, not a lot of steps involved. There's repentance. Lord, I'm a sinner. I acknowledge I'm a sinner. And I have failed you, and I need you to change me. That's what repentance is. Lord, help me change. And faith, you're the king. I believe you died for me. I believe that you rose again, and I believe that you can change my heart. Save me by that grace. Friend, is that you today? Please don't leave this place and not be covered by that grace. I pray that your eyes are opened as the centurion to who truly is the Son of God, the King of Kings. Or maybe you're like the faithful women, and I believe so many of you are. You're faithful. You love Jesus with all your heart. You follow him. You're available to him. You serve him. You give. Thank God for you. Thank God for you. I mean that with all my heart. Thank God for your faithfulness. Here's the reality, friends. Whoever, either of us, any of us is in this scenario, I pray that we can't leave this place without truly understanding the gravity of what's happened in this text. Not just a message some guy is preaching from a, a table. This changes the world. And it changes your life if you let it.
This is the horrible punishment that you deserve, that I deserve, that was poured out on Christ for our sins, the fulfillment of God's design and plan of his Messiah to be crushed, to be broken, to be forsaken for us. But his forsakenness gives us access to God Almighty, to forgiveness, to life. I want to read this as we close. I just I read this in awe. And just in, as the, those around the cross who had to be in awe when the sun stopped shining, there's this moment where you have to go, okay, this is bigger than us. I feel that way when it thunders and rains and, and it pours. And just, I just go, oh, this is bigger than me, God. When we read this, there's no way to read this and not see this was written a thousand years before Jesus' death and go, God, you are in control and you are a God of love. He loves you so much. And may that love and may that sacrifice compel you as it did Simon to carry a cross, to compel you and me to know Jesus and to love him and to live for him and to worship him and to stand for him. Because friends, if you've noticed, it's just getting harder and harder to stand for Christ. And I just felt the need this morning to stand before you and say, don't grow weary. Don't grow weary. Stand. Stand. Men of God, stand. Isaiah 53, 4 through 10. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man. In his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, so faithfully and so selflessly, Lord, not my will but yours. This was God's will for us. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Pray with me. Lord, I'm undone. 
I stand before my family and my friends and I just say, I have nothing to offer apart from you, Jesus. I am the robber. I am the murderer. I am the sinner that you died for. I'm so grateful and so unworthy. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for tearing that curtain from top to bottom to say to all the world that there is now access to a loving God through Jesus and his death. That at the very same time, priests were sacrificing lambs for Passover. The one true Passover lamb was sacrificed for me. Once and for all. Hallelujah. Thank you, God. Lord, can I just pray this prayer for the men in this audience? Would you help us to stand? Would you help us to follow you in a way that we lead our families, we lead our own lives out of apathy, out of drifting, and back to our first love? that there's nothing in our lives more important than knowing you and making you known. God, I pray for faithful women, leading women who will stand when their men won't. Thank you, God, that we even see a picture of that. And I'm, I'm so thankful. I don't know how many countless women I know that stand and serve you in that way. Lord, thank you. Many of them represented today. God, thank you for families, Thank you for grace for people who don't know you that come to know you by the blood and sacrifice of Jesus alone. How grateful are we, God, for this story, for this beauty, for this price that was paid for us. God, thank you. How can we thank you enough? How can we stand enough? How can we sing loud enough? How can we live for you enough to say thank you for saving us from hell? Oh God, help us to sense the gravity of the salvation you have saved us in. And may we now walk in you by your spirit because we are alive for such a time as this to be used of you for your glory. To preach. It doesn't mean to be a preacher. It means to tell the world that Jesus is the Lord and that he loves them family members, friends, co-workers, that we all would be preachers preaching this word and making disciples. God, move our church. Continue to move us, Lord. Continue to help us to stand and be strong and to not grow weary. For we will see a harvest. We will see you do what only you can do if we just won't give up. God, would you do it in us? We love you. And we give you this time of commitment and reflection in Jesus' name.